uh, it was about 460 acres uh, of land bounded by Grand Avenue on east, on west, stretched all the way to almost Union Station on east, and from all the south to the railroad tracks. And the city of St. Louis bought the land, cleared it from almost every building, and uh, the plan was to come in and build new housing, new commerce, and new industries. And they were hoping that with these new buildings, uh, the trend of exodus of people and, and businesses from city to county would be reversed. Uh, and then people would start living in the city and businesses would invest in the city. And one of these housing developments was like Cape Town. Uh, like Cape Town was about 30 acres uh, of low-rise to three-story buildings. It was bounded by Compton Avenue on west, Ewing on east, uh, Olive on north, and Lakeheed Avenue on south. What I found out most interesting about the Key Town was that first of all it was built, started in 1963, the construction started in 1963 and it finished around 1968. And it was designed, as I said, for low moderate income families. But it not only was for low moderate, but it also was racially mixed almost from the very beginning. It was 60% uh, white, 40% black, and which at that time in a city that was racially segregated, in a country that basically was racially segregated. This was an advanced step, uh, considered very, very uh, unusual, and I was doubtful that we would succeed, but it did. And it was not only racially mixed, but it was income mixed. They had various different peoples, from very low income to people who could afford to pay market rate rents. They had professionals, engineers, doctors, students, musicians, artists, all walks of life. People lived there harmoniously, and it worked for about a decade. And that success brought national attention to the state town, and many articles were published in magazines such as Time Magazine, Newsweek, Fortune Magazine, Business Week, Architectural Forum, and many other magazines throughout the country. And, and all the articles praised first the architect for uh, whose name was Tokyo Woodard Smith, who was trying to prove certain facts that might or might not make a good way of life. But I have to tell you first why I got interested. And that, I think, is in many respects more important even than what the final results were at the Cleet Town. But I will tell you later on just exactly what did happen there and why uh, from a very reputable, very desirable place to live that went down downhill. This, I want, I've actually, believe it or not, I have been interested, I'll be 88 years old in January. I've been interested in housing for 80 years. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because it has a, a major bearing on the Cleet Town and why it was done and what happened there. Uh, first of all, I might in summary say that I personally, at Millstone Construction or our other companies that we set up, have done every type of housing that there is. We built the first public housing project in 1936 <coughs> in St. Petersburg, Florida. Why St. Petersburg? Because Senator Claude Pepper was chairman of the Senate Housing Committee. Bidding on the project at that side, making the bond, because all of the work was highly competitive. It wasn't much work that was just dished out or done cost plus. It was highly competitive work. But anyway, uh, and after that, we did practically all the public housing projects in St. Louis which came much later than we were working in the South. We also worked uh, in three offices in Florida doing nothing but housing. We were in Montgomery, Alabama building housing. And then we closed those offices after World War II because conditions had changed so much and we got very busy up here in St. Louis uh, doing other things than housing. We built most of the shopping centers here Bush Stadium, the Conteal Tower. We've done lots of construction. And also we run a division of heavy and highway, which personally I have always preferred 
doing heavy and hybrid work because uh, there we don't have to depend on a lot of subcontractors. If you don't use the lowest subcontractor, you're not the low, lowest general contractor. And then even if you are the low general contractor, you have to build it with the lowest subcontractor. And so that is easy, because they're not always the best. And you spend all of your time buying and uh, trying to supervise people. So as a result, Millstone Construction got out of the uh, general contracting business about 12 years ago, but we've continued our heavy and highway division under the name Bangor. We have the third generation of Bangor's that run uh, Bangor Paving Company, and two of my grandsons are with that company. Okay, so much for the uh, background of Millstone Construction in general and why I ended up as owners and builders of the Clay Town. The reason I referred to 80 years in housing, people have to understand that in that period of time, many things happened that made uh, housing either desirable or undesirable. And many of these conditions uh, are beyond uh, any individual's control. As a result, I don't know that I have any answers, even after all the experience that I've had in housing, that what the answers are. I couldn't today tell you uh, what the answers would, would be to come up with so-called desirable uh, low-cost, uh, not low-cost, because there's no such thing as low-cost. Uh, you may leave things out. This morning, whether we were building Beta One Skinner, which is a luxury apartment, or we were building Pruitt-Igo at that time, the costs were the same. The, the brickwork, or the concrete for cubic yard, or the doors, or the roofing were identical. There was no difference. The only thing that would make it no cost would be because the people said they don't want Skinner would get in fancy uh, carpeting or air conditioning, which at that time they did not permit in certain public housing or any low-cost housing, because that was supposed to be a luxury. Well, we know it isn't a luxury. In St. Louis, air conditioning is not a luxury. It's important. So, or at pruitt Igo, uh, uh, they came up with uh, skip-stop elevators. They had saved a landing. Well, that turned out to be a fiasco. And uh, I'll talk about architects, because we worked with lots of different architects. That time, that was uh, Yamasaki, which was part of uh, Helmuth uh, at that time. Later on, Obama took his place. They designed Obama. So uh, I may sound critical, by the way, of uh, some of these uh, people, architects and others, even Bluefield Smith. When I get over to the Cleveland Township, I'll tell you, problems that we had uh, with her design. If there are architects uh, in this group, imagine and maybe some of these will be lessons that uh, you should take to heart. But anyway, getting back to this concept of housing and why we've been involved with it so long and why I have been interested in it, as a young boy, my grandmother lived down at Knife and near what is now, I guess, Delmar somewhere. And I used to, and at that time, we lived way up at King's Highway. We just moved to King's Highway. It was a dirt street going north. It dead ended at what was eastern. That Christian Brothers College was down in that end. But anyway, I refer to that so you'll get an understanding of eventually of what brought about the Clay Town. First, first of all, at that time, any place you went, you had to go on the streetcar. My father was a young engineer working for St. Louis Car Company at the turn of the century when they manufactured all the streetcars for the United States. Uh, I was born, he, an artist, him to be able to walk to work. I was born on Adelaide Avenue, a house in the basin, whatever that park is, down there. And then in 19, 
of somebody living and going to school also, by the way, and walking to school in that neighborhood. Uh, and they think that, that many of the slums never should even have been ranked. There was great criticism when, uh, when uh, large so-called slum areas, by this time, they were slum areas because they had now deteriorated to the point where they were that infested not really livable. And some people didn't like the idea that uh, you started to build uh, crude igos, you started to build other type of housing, and you completely lost this uh, neighborhood uh, uh, atmosphere that people uh, liked. Uh, but uh, what then started happening, when these houses started to be wrecked and they weren't livable anymore, at the same time, there were many blacks starting to come in from the south, Arkansas, Mississippi, and they had to be housed. And this is when the concept started of the public housing, that we would build uh, large units. The first ones we built, by the way, were not high-rise, they were three-story, but they were large projects. And, but it was the only way, it was the only way at that time to house these uh, people. If you, there were thousands, and, uh, and if there weren't any of the other so-called slum units left, because a lot of them were wrecked for the uh, or, uh, uh, Bush Stadium, which we also built, or along for the Arch, there was a lot of uh, places being wrecked. So they provided, to begin with, they provided a place for people to move into. Many of these people had never been in a new modern building. They had come out of basically shacks with no inside plumbing uh, and all. But there was the only place really to house these people at that time. Now we all know the problems that started to uh, uh, come about because of the problems, the social problems, the other type problems with putting thousands of people with young children uh, in uh, congested uh, areas without control. Prior to that, there was plenty of family control. But by now, it seemed to be things were changing. Anyway, with that, uh, and then also, in addition to these public housing projects, we had built the original, all original FHA projects in this area were subdivisions and all. Well, frankly, at that time, that worked uh, well too. So why did the FHA units uh, work well? Because number one, they were ownership. They were not rental. There's a big difference between owning and renting. Okay. Plus inflation was making these units that we originally were building trying to keep under $5,000 per unit. They were going up to 10, 15, 20, 30, 40,000 dollars. Now people had a real investment. Most of them were adding uh, sweat equity, finishing off the basement, uh, adding a room, whatever it was. They took care of them. They made a lot of money. And that's going to bring up the economic aspects that I'm also going to talk about as far as the big town is concerned and why it didn't work in that regard. Now, these were all experiences that I had lived through uh, by the time we had arrived at this complete uh, town uh, project. So uh, that was a time of the Levittown also. Levittown, we were starting this concept of Levittown. We were building just as many housing units or more than Bill Levitt was building around all of our different offices. Um, some subdivisions, modern public housing uh, projects, a lot of units, uh, and the end cost per family was always the same. Originally, we used to pay $2,2500 per unit is about what they were running. That was back in the 30s. But with, according to our cost records that we've kept over all these years, uh, it's 20 times today what it was in the 30s. So 20 times 2,000 or 2,500 before 850,000, which it is. At the same time, if you buy an automobile for $500, 20 times 500 is $10,000. You know. 
wages were proportioned. Laborers got 50 cents an hour, 20 times be $10. In St. Louis, they get closer to 20. Not in the South, in St. Louis. Mechanics, they've got a dollar an hour. Carpenters, iron workers, bricklayers, now get 25, 30. So there's, it all runs in, in proportion. So, uh, so anyway, uh, now with the experience that we've had, uh, as a, and you must remember that I got involved in all of this type of housing work because we were contractors looking for construction work. I wasn't looking at them as investments. In fact, we, none of them were investments uh, for us. We were just contractors. So anyway, this leads me up to uh, Town, where uh, uh, where the HUD, I don't know if it was HUD at that time, there been so many different names of housing, federal housing, but uh, they decided that they were going to give allocations for housing units. I think it was 221D3, I think. There's so many numbers. There were several other. That wasn't the only pro program. Each one of them had conditions attached to to the particular type of loan. Okay, so now when they when St. Louis was awarded a certain number of units and and, and uh, low cost loans. There were no cost loans. So the interest on it was 3%, 4%, and that was sort of the going rate for mortgage money. We were doing a lot of private work, industrial work, and all. We weren't paying any more interest than that on those loans at that time. That's what the rate was. And the loan, I think, was a 40 year loan. And the uh, HUD, the government agency, they set the rents. We couldn't set the rents. They set the rents. And the only thing that went into that into that rent was the payments on the mortgage, uh, set aside for replacements, roofing, refrigerator, silver, which went to the government, and about two percent or two and a half percent for management. Period. This is the way they set. so when so after we uh, the reason. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because the one that was selected uh, in St. Louis was uh, Shire, Jim Shire uh, in New York. That family had done a lot of housing in New York uh, and uh, they made a lot of money on housing because the New York people had to have a place to live. Uh, they, they were used to renting, not owning. Paid good rents, so they were their family uh, had a good, uh, long experience in profitable rental housing. So they were selected, uh, and that's a long story. It was was in the newspapers competition between Zeckendorf and Shriners. Anyway, they were selected, and not only here, they were selected in New York, in Puerto Rico, Sacramento, and California, <coughs> as developers. They were the developer. They were selected. Uh, so uh, he needed a builder. I knew his father, Cy Shire, and all. So uh, uh, he got in touch with us, and we were going to do uh, uh, the construction on the Cleet Down for Shire. Uh, no sooner than we were getting started, Jim Shire decided that he wanted to run for Congress. Well, his father didn't want him to run for Congress. He wouldn't give him any money to run, so I bought out. So Millstone Construction at that time, Millstone Construction Inc., we bought out Jim Shire so he could run for Congress, and he was elected. Now I wasn't a contractor anymore. Now I was a developer owner uh, and responsible for management. So, uh, in, uh, and I didn't object to that because from all these experiences that I've been relating to you, I had ideas as to what I thought ought to go into housing to make it livable. You know? 
Now I have the opportunity to try to prove it, see if it would work. So what were these, and fortunately we had people in our company that I'm sure you've read about over the years who were with us later on went off for themselves. Leon Strauss was with us, he became a developer. The manager that we put down there was Jerry Berger. A lot of stories have been written about him. Uh, and I'll tell you more about that. Uh, so uh, now, uh, Now it was a matter of trying to build a project uh, from our previous experience with housing and it worked. Number one, all of the previous projects were segregated. There was no such thing as integrated housing. You know, all the public housing we built here, there was a couple of them for whites, and the rest of them blacks. There, there were there was no integration. So at that time, that time, integration sounded like a good idea. Again, I'm gonna get ahead of myself and say very frankly, today it isn't such a great idea. That isn't at the top of the totem pole as, as the most desirable uh, element in housing, but it was at that time. So we decided we were gonna have an integrated project. Also, we wanted to have project that uh, people would enjoy living, enjoy living, and the type of people that came in, as you, I'm sure that you're aware of, if you did, were, were a mix of people that today I question whether we could duplicate that. It was a success because we provided recreation. We took, uh, we had people from over at, uh, on uh, Olive, what was it? Gaslight. Gaslight Square. Uh, we had the uh, reporter uh, who recently, oh, Joe Pollock, lived down there. Uh, he wrote to me recently uh, uh, with great nostalgia, with great times they had down there. And then we also, uh, you must remember, there were no school. There was a whole area had been cleared out. This was considered one of the worst slums. There was no schools, there was no shopping, uh, no transportation here. We were almost uh, like out in the desert somewhere. And we had to cope with that, which wasn't easy. Uh, we, we were designing these buildings, having these buildings designed for large families. There were three, four bedroom units. It wasn't like the uh, housing that we did for the uh, elderly simple, smart units, you didn't have the problems of families and all, and it was a different. We built a lot of that also. So anyway, we're now trying to see what we could come up with, with a uh, desirable, successful project. And evidently we did accomplish it because uh, we've got files full of, uh, of uh, people uh, congratulating us, wanting to know how uh, they could do the same. We had uh, people from Reston, Columbia, that wanted to make a whole new city. What was his name? Uh, Rouse. Uh, what Rouse. Rouse. Right, Rouse. And we, uh, our people became very friendly with them. We talked back and forth what should be done and so forth. Then uh, Phil Klutznik, who uh, had uh, was also one of the uh, uh, housing, uh, National Housing Commissioner, whatever he was, uh, Bill Tussick, he came down. He left the government and he started in Chicago a, a project uh, that they called, I think, Park Forest. You know, here saw Forest Park, I think, in Chicago, they called it Park Forest. Also at that time, there uh, a couple of young men from, uh, from uh, Memphis. Uh, one of them was Joe Cantor, and he came in uh, 
and they start built what is now Canterbury Gardens. I'll make a few comments about that too, because that relates to architecture and also living style and all. So anyway, these were the things that uh, went in to uh, create the uh, clean town. And all I can say, I took great pride in it. It worked. The Unstrauss went down there, the Arthur went down there, and if there were rents, by the way, we had to check uh, the rents, the income, for everybody to, in order to, to go in there. As a result, we had a lot of low-income people, but the low-income people were students, or St. Louis U, Washington U, uh, people who didn't have any uh, definite income so they could certify that they were below a certain limit. And they, you must remember, they were going in and housing and renting housing units for $100 a month. Uh, and it was a very desirable place to, to live. They liked living down there. We even bought a Rolls Royce storm car in order to t drive the kids over to schools because we didn't have We had to reopen the wearing school. And that's the story in itself. Because after we had it open and it was a model school, they started busing in a lot of uh, people from the north and all who started creating problems for our children and all. Take your bicycle, beat some of them up, there was some problems. Percy Green, by the way, I think, can tell a little bit about that. Because I think he helped us out, as I recall, on some of those problems we ran into some of, the, some of this, these problems. So, uh, so now it was highly successful. It was a desirable place to live. People were coming in paying market rate rent, but we can only take in a small percentage uh, at market rate, but they preferred and they wanted to live there. Then we started to get a lot of, on the uh, intake, we had reached the point where we had three, four people or more families that wanted to come in for every unit we had available. Now we started to run, run into problems with politicians wanting to put people in there. We had, uh, uh, I think, a, a black group sued us even because they watched that a white family came in and they said they were on the list ahead of them. But we were trying to keep this as an integrated project. We were fully aware of the percent, and the blacks realized it, and they knew it. The city, they had also given tax abatement for 10 years plus half for the next 15 <coughs> So nothing could be added other than the items I mentioned before on the rent. And frankly, the problems were not starting to rise. And we had, and people were perfectly willing to increase the rent for security for rubbish removal and all. HUD said, no way. We couldn't add it on the rent. As a result, Wilson Construction that was doing a lot of other work where that was profitable. All of our profits were going into the clean town. Now, we were losing $200,000 a year to pay for these items, could not be put on the rent. We had at that time over 4,000 people living there, 1,400 families with three, four apiece. It's 45,000 people we had living there. And, and now they were trying, from the point of view of economics, we, this is where the government makes a mistake. They think that some private corporation or, who, or individuals are going to be philanthropic enough to be able to pay the rent or the subsidy for people in order to keep rents low. I can assure you it is not true. Whenever anybody gets into, uh, into housing, they expect to make a profit. And if there's a subsidy required, the government's going to have to come up with the subsidy even though they, they, the planners and all tried to conceal from Congress the fact that the money was being spent, so they started selling limited partnerships, which I would not do. I don't believe in it. They didn't do it. 
So I turned the project over to Jerry Berger. They, they, he and some other people picked up millions of dollars selling limited partnerships to those people to get the depreciation. That was the end of the clean town. Now, the limited partners won't put a nickel in the bar. It was requiring two, three hundred thousand a year, really, in subsidy. There was no subsidy over me. Those no of want to subsidize me. That's not realistic. And then on top of it, to rub salt in the wound, then when we gave it away, we had to pay a million and a half dollars in recapture tax for having gotten rid of the project because the depreciation has to be, has to be reclaimed and so forth. So this was our uh, economic uh, story, why we uh, built it, why we tried to uh, run it as a successful project, and why basically the mere fact that they tried to hold the rent at an unrealistic level, and somebody other than the government was supposed to be putting the uh, the money in for subsidizing it. It will not work. You know. And uh, concealing it by uh, letting people take uh, tax deductions against their income, which is what brought on the era of uh, selling limited partnerships with Leon Strauss, and everybody did it. I did not do it, I didn't approve of it, because eventually I figured it would fail. And why would it fail? Because the owners become the limited partners. Limited partner only want to be heard. What is our tax deduction? They're scattered all over the country, different amounts of shares. Don't tell them the project needs good management. Don't tell them it needs repair. They're not interested. And now you have something running loose with nobody except the manager that is there who's supposed to take care of repairs and cost money, supposed to take care of people getting the proper people in it, which is a story in itself. You have to, you have to really, uh, really uh, swing the people or you're going to end in in big trouble. So anyway, these are problems that existed there, and that's what happened. I could tell many more horror stories, but, uh, but this is a, uh, our story of how we got involved with the town and what eventually happened. A tenant living there in the Clee Town. First and foremost, let me just say that uh, I'm glad to know that some persons uh, felt the need to come to listen about the Clee Town. However, it is unfortunate that a lot more persons that probably be interested are not here. I'm hoping that we can do this again. Uh, and this time, of course, uh, make sure that the news media and people in the community will have an opportunity to hear about the history of Cleveland. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, aside from what I was what I'm about to say, I want to uh, make that point. Um, I moved into Lee Town about January 1965 and I left there in August of 1985. Um, during this period, well, let me just share with you why I would, as a person, seeking housing. What about, what about the plea town that was uh, uh, appealing? Well, at the time I was involved in protest uh, activities, getting an organization named Action. Action was an interracial or integrated protest organization. And of course, uh, when if uh, anyone that is looking for housing, of course, would be looking for uh, decent housing. And uh, the food town at the time was about the only place that, uh, that was uh, that qualified as such. And at the same time, in terms of uh, the uh, rent payments. 
So at the time, I just got married, and uh, uh, we went to uh, the management office located at that time on uh, Compton and, and Lawton. And for the first time, I met Jerry Berg. He was the uh, uh, he was the, uh, the manager, and um, my wife and I at the time saw Jerry Berg. He being a very colorful person similar to many of the members that was in action. Action was interracial organization, so therefore, Jerry at no point indicated that he had some fears of black folk and black people. And um, so we went into the office and uh, made application, and, uh, uh, just as, there, just as uh, any and everyone else. And I guess maybe after about a month or so, we were called indicated that we had uh, they found an apartment for us. At that point, I think the first unit that, I, that we moved into was uh, 2987, no, 3119 Long. And then uh, we stayed there for a while, and then uh, we moved to 2987. 3119 Long was considered uh, University Heights Central. That was the, the units there at uh, located from Compton up to Cardinal. And then, of course, they were still building. And then they, uh, the other units were pretty much the same as the one that we just moved into. And it was called University Heights uh, East. And uh, shortly thereafterwards, uh, we moved to 2987. And then the, uh, I guess that was I guess, uh, let's see, from 66 up until about 70-something. And then uh, Breakthrough were the other units, and they were the units uh, east of uh, Ewing. And then there were some other units that was uh, west of Compton. And each one of those projects, there were about 200 and some odd units. So um, after having moved from um, 2987, I then moved to Breakthrough that was located there right off of Compton. Uh, in 3119, I believe, uh, Lawton Walk. Well, the interesting thing here was that, keep in mind that people that was involved in protest action and would have found housing difficult um, any place because a lot of landlords would have felt as if uh, you know, civil rights people were undesirable, so if not, they would, they would have uh, caused problems for other tenants, etc. Jim Jerry Berger didn't see us as being a liability. If anything, he saw us as being an asset. And uh, he had interesting people around him. At least that was the way that we perceived it. Uh, they were people uh, that was uh, went either into art or in uh, various forms. Uh, they were social type uh, persons, people that uh, were, were into parties, uh, etc. Uh, writers, musicians. People on the left, people in the middle, people on the right. It was a very interesting chemistry of people that were being developed here. Of course, Jerry Berger at that particular time, he had the responsibility of placing people. And if you weren't an asset, if you weren't a person that was going to add something to the community, well then of course, uh, you were not we were not let in. So it seemed as if he had a very, very way of uh, developing uh, the Cleve Town, and it worked <clears throat> as long as he had the power of placing the various people. He did not lump all people of the same sort together. He didn't lump all blacks together. He had a black here, he had a white here, he had a Hispanic here, he had another person that, uh, that was a, another interest 
but it was very, very colorful, and uh, and it worked. And I was very, very much, uh, I think, uh, was impressed with uh, in the manner that it was done. Uh, he being the manager, uh, as well as uh, the people that uh, that I met and interacted with during this particular period. At or about 1975, somewhere around 75, I believe, I began to, and others began to start seeing things deteriorate. Um, of course, there was a lot of rumors uh, here and there about monies and <coughs> being short. We had a change in the administration, of course, and. Uh, Republican Party was in, and of course, there was a limited amount of money for social type programs. Um, then, of course, uh, it was rumored that there were other interest uh, groups uh, that Jerry had to seek employment, had to seek uh, or reorganize uh, uh, the management and ownership in order to get monies, uh, in order to try to keep the Glee Town going. And of course, uh, being a resident and a tenant and interest in other things, it wasn't really my interest of really finding out all of the fine inner workings. I've learned more about all of that after reading some of uh, uh, the writings of uh, Mr. Barbar. thesis and all. But it all makes sense as it relates to my memory of about what took place during that particular time. And um, shortly thereafterwards, as I pointed out, uh, we noticed there was what we call white flight. Um, it seemed as if that whites, uh, after their children got up to a certain age, for them to move to other areas. Now, I don't know whether that is, whether that would be considered as an unfair indictment or not. The point was that it, it happened. Uh, of course, I mean, one could very easily argue that due to the deterioration of management not being able to fulfill its obligations. And here was a very interesting, strange thing See, at the time that we first moved into the Clay Town, I mean, much of the talk was that the Clay Town was private, uh, that it was a private uh, community, et cetera. Um, uh, the police department would not ordinarily, you know, police the, the area or drive down through the area. Strangely uh, enough, the Clay Town had to be responsible for its own security. trash pickup, things that other neighborhoods uh, would take for granted. Cleetown had to pick up its own trash and then have to take it to a big large dumpster and then someone or had to, and, and had to, management had to pay for uh, the, the trash to be, uh, uh, to be hauled away. Well, all, we used to get trash bags, it was just, Whenever you paid the rent, there were certain things that you just automatically got. So in other words, people were pretty much <clears throat> accustomed or maybe became spoiled because there were so many things that were, uh, that were given that all of a sudden when things began to start deteriorating, well, I mean, you no longer got trash bags. And then all of a sudden, uh, trash was not being picked up daily. It was being picked up every other day. Then some days or some weeks it wasn't picked up at all. So all of a sudden people then began to become very frustrated and, and moved and moved away. Now, of course some of this could be laid at the foot of uh, management. Uh, but then I think that uh, when you look at the overall scheme of things, you can very easily see how other things were impacting was impacting the, uh, the 
decision-making uh, in terms of our management. So, in closing, because I want to uh, get into some of uh, the interacting of uh, some of you, and I noticed that some of you are, are in the audience that, that also live in the Glee Town and uh, probably had very, very good experiences as I had, very rewarding experiences um, uh, from, uh, from a political standpoint as well as from a social standpoint. And uh, I strongly recommend it uh, if it could ever be done again. I differ with Mr. Millstone in terms of the social, the social integration thing. I think that uh, the mere fact of having that experience, even though I was having that experience from a limited, in a limited fashion by having an interracial organization, but that whole experience broadened itself and getting a better understanding among people. And the interesting thing that I learned from that experience, I certainly would hope that many person had that opportunity, and that is that we're more alike than we are different. And uh, and you, you, I think that you only really get a chance to understand that when you living together and happen to do some of the same things, each, each person get a chance to see that uh, being factual rather than assuming or making speculations. So um, I think that even though the Clean Town originally started with the, the fabric of, uh, of uh, integrating uh, racially as well as economically, uh, and I'm sure that most persons that had that experience would agree with me that it was a rewarding experience. I think it tore down a whole lot of the, the walls of, uh, of, of, of the, stereo, the stereotyping. Uh, whether you look at it from black, whether you look at it looking at it through black eyes or looking through white eyes, and a lot of that whole entire uh, stereotyping uh, diminished. So uh, without any further ado, I think I will just uh, leave my comments uh, at that point and then leave some time for the other speaker, uh, speaker and then maybe we can get into some interacting. Thank you.
terms of housing was completely uh, different. Some of the aspects were along the same lines. I met Mr. Green in the uh, WashU Social Work School, uh, and we had a lot of discussions on, on Pruitt Igo, and similar to what uh, Mr. Bovar is doing on Laclevetown, I did some of the same thoughts on, on uh, Pruitt Igo. After graduating, I spent about four years with the St. Louis Housing Authority working on various uh, developments in, uh, in St. Louis. And surprisingly, Mr. Green was at the Housing Authority at that time. So we had a lot of interaction, a lot of exchange, a lot of discussions on different social issues, different uh, thoughts about architecture, thoughts about management, different thoughts about not only internal management of developments, but external, such as HUD, our St. Louis Housing Authority in terms of how these things are implemented and, and whether they're successful or, or not successful. Um, I've continued my practice doing low to moderate income housing in the city of St. Louis and have had the opportunity to work with numerous uh, housing groups as well as with HUD as well as the St. Louis Housing Authority. Uh, we've recently completed the design for the DeSales Mutual Housing different type of um, um, management group and I think a lot of the things that that came up as a result of some of the issues with Laclee Town uh, mutual housing is part of that uh, for those of you who are not familiar with mutual housing uh, the first aspect is that there is a neighborhood group that that puts this process together once that's done the first set of tenants really have control as to what's going on. Once those tenants are, are selected, they make a selection on who their manager will be. And when there's attrition through tenants moving out, they make a selection on who the next tenant will be. So they know who their neighbors are, they make uh, decisions on when those rents should be raised, when maintenance is required, and all of those aspects, which I think are, are critical in terms of housing. One of the things that we did in, in quote, designing that housing is that we did not go back to our office and come back with a set of plans saying this is what's going to take place. We worked with the neighborhood group, all of the pros and cons on, on what should take place here, and they were very much aware of, of, uh, of why these decisions were made, why there were three bedrooms, why there were two bedrooms, why the mix was here, why the playground was set up the way it was, why the parking the way was, and I think part of my background in social work in WashU deals with that whole notion of participatory design. <coughs> We're gathering that type of information, putting forth all the pros and cons, and then whatever decision is made, there's rationale for that. We brought forth that same type of thought and that philosophy with the mayor's task force on, quote, the redevelopment of the Clay Town. We've been working with CDA and the Mayor's Task Force uh, since January of 94. We completed our assignment uh, July of this year. To give you some idea, the Mayor had a task force of some 20 different uh, particip participants. They range from his administrative assistants to Boltman's Bank, St. Louis U, Harris Stowe, Berea Church, which is surrounding um, um, Laclee Town, the Locust Business District, which is a little bit to the North, uh, the different congressmen and senators' offices, uh, A.G. Edwards, which is to the east, uh, CDA, which is a St. Louis agency, as well as residents, Manny Trice, who represented the, the, the residents and uh, some of the people who currently live in 60 North Ewing. Also on this panel was Hutt. Ken Lang actually attended these meetings and, and gave his input in terms of, of what's going on. One of the things that we were um, uh, more or less obligated to do was to go through the typical analysis of, of what's around the area, what currently exists, some of the current land use, hopefully in, in regards to what the future land use would be. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Laclede Town. I brought a couple slides that I'll show you shortly, but we established early on that any criteria that or any selection that we went through would be based on, on a set of, of uh, evaluation criteria. And that criteria dealt with historic use and investment, what kind of money had already been put in, 
what was it used before the Cleetown? Town, what's the current use, what are the market factors of the area, what's surrounding the area, what's, what's going to really impact what takes place here now. Job creation, what goes back, will there be any jobs or will it be something that does not create jobs? Are we talking about short term in terms of construction or are we talking about long term in terms of what goes there? Also community impacts and benefits. Uh, revenue to the city through land sale. If the land was sold, what kind of revenue would be here, whether it's for X purpose or Y purpose. Uh, the cost of city services. You've heard two gentlemen talk about uh, city services here. When you start talking about different types of activities, this deals with improvement of the infrastructure, whether it's sewers, water, uh, gas, electric, uh, transportation, or even trash pickup police services, um, school services, all of those kind of things are city services that must be uh, included. And then you look at annual taxes to the city. What type of uh, redevelopment will create the best types of uh, tax base for the city? The last item, not the last, but one of the most important items, since there are still about 275 occupied units, and we're talking about 275 or so families, and these are three, four, five bedroom units. So if you multiply that out, you'll get an idea of how many families are still left out of the 1,100 or so units on the 50 acres of McLeod Town. Uh, next to last item is the environmental is issues, abatement of, of lead-based paint, uh, any type of, of subsurface structures that were there. Mr. Millstone will tell you there were a lot of gas stations that were on that side, a lot of factories, a lot of industries. And when this was built in 1960, some of the environmental issues that we deal with today were not at issue at that particular time. So when McLeod Town is demolished, if that's the decision, what kind of uh, environmental issues are we uncovering here? And the last item that we were, were uh, forced to deal with in terms of the evaluation criteria was the financial feasibility. Who's gonna pay for this? Mr. Billstone pointed out that the only way a lot of these things are done is through government subsidy. Uh, the, the main reason that the mayor's office got involved in this is that the uh, local HUD Department of Housing and Urban Development decided they wanted to give the land to the city. Uh, through this, Mayor Bosley said, we want to really look at this, evaluate this in terms of, of what's the best use for this particular land. He did not want to do this particular exercise in a vacuum. That was the reason for setting up the task force. He felt that this task force was a, a good representation of, of the city of St. Louis. Uh, also part of this was Mary Clark, who was the alderwoman, uh, is the alderwoman of the area, and, and she represented the uh, constituents, constituents here. Uh, through this process, we developed, I think, four or five different scenarios. We went through this evaluation criteria for each one of these. I think the first one was leaving Laclede Town as it is, perhaps reducing the density and going through uh, the exercise of, of renovating those units, going from perhaps 1,100 units down to maybe 700 or something like that. And I think through this evaluation criteria, it was determined that this was not one of the options that the uh, task force wanted to explore. Uh, we had two options under what we called scenario two, and that was to do some sort of mix between uh, expansion of the institutions that were around the area, which were St. Louis U, Harris Stowe, and Berea Church, uh, and continuing some aspect of housing, uh, rental housing, as well as single family housing. In that particular scenario, we were looking at, uh, which we called scenario 2A, 91 single family homes and the development of approximately 120 low to moderate income uh, units, keeping uh, what's known as Operation Breakthrough uh, East, I believe, which is right behind A.G. Edwards. For those of you who are not familiar, Laclede Town is, is comprised of, I think, five different uh, developments. There's Breakthrough West, um, Breakthrough East, Breakthrough East, and 
University of Central. University Central, University East, East and Laclede Park. So those were the five different uh, sections of Laclede Town. Many people think that the Center reason, Park. The reason for that was that the government wasn't willing to allocate uh, more than a certain amount until it was proven to be successful, and then they'd move on to the next one. We'd get a, another until we ended up with breakthrough, which was basically experimental housing in order to reduce cost. I think as Mr. Millstone said, done in, in numerous phases. Most people think of Laclede Town as, I'll show you on the slides, that particular section, but that was actually known as University Heights Central and University Heights East. Uh, scenario 2B that we propose, through working with the task force, going through all of these different uh, options, was to do 49 single-family homes and 68 low to moderate income uh, units and part of the rationale for this is many of you remember when uh, Mayor Bosley ran for election one of his components was to create housing